Hello and welcome to another APW Property Podcast episode. We aim to liven up your Mondays with lively discussions about topics relating to UK property. Today we're going to be taking a deep dive into the exciting subject of thermal efficiency in the built environment and be asking questions like, how thick should your lagging be? It's a companion piece to our podcast on EPCs or Energy Performance Certificates. So do have a listen to that podcast as well. Uh, with me once again are Stuart Williamson from APW. Hello, Paul. And property consultant Graham Kinnear. Hi, Graham. Hello, Paul. Uh, so, Graham, uh, you're a chartered surveyor and uh, chartered building engineer, EPC assessor. Uh, remind us what we learned about EPC certificates in the first podcast. Well, we, we did an overview in the first uh, the first podcast and we talked about the costs and, and how you'd go about getting an EPC and we talked about the the principal issues that make a difference to to the score that you're you're likely to receive. Yeah so EPCs are a rating system for the energy performance of a different building they're rated from A to G A is very good and G is terrible and then there are regulations that apply in the private sector which are very onerous for landlords. Uh, the first one was that they had to get their rating from G to E by 2018, I think it was. And then the next one is a C rating is being applied for new tenancies from 2025 and for all tenancies from 2028. And in some properties, that is a big challenge. So also just remind us quickly what you do, how the rating comes about. There's an inspection of the property um, the volume of the building is calculated and then there's principal attention applied to basically the building's ability to retain heat. So we look at loft insulation, wall insulation, floor insulation, and then we look at how the building services operate in terms of how the building's heated, uh, ventilated and what have you. And then that data works its way through uh, a software system and ultimately produces a score and then the certificate. And as you say, for uh, property investors, for landlords, uh, that score needs to be a minimum of 39 points currently if they're planning on renting their property. But if the regulations come in in 2025, 2028, in respect of a C instead of 39, they would need to reach 69 points, which is a very, very different challenge. Yeah, so so you also thought that there were, you know, some problems with the rating system that it doesn't really, because it's the, this one size fits all for for all sorts of buildings, uh, it doesn't really take into account what is necessarily best practice or best cu current practice in how to improve the th energy performance of a building. T tell us something about that. The government algorithm, the software system that there is, in terms of identifying the building that you're having a, a look at, which then in essence, pre-populates the software with some data about the building itself is broadly limited to its principal method of construction, let's say if it's traditional cavity construction or what have you. And then there's some additional data which is, is allowed into the system where the surveyor picks, selects a, a construction date banding. And that's that then introduces some data which is akin to what the building regulation requirements would have been at that time. So that that's useful in terms of if there's insulation matters that you can't see, because in essence, the, the EPC is a non-invasive inspection. We don't drill holes into the walls to see what's there. And broadly, we work on the basis that 
if we can't see it, we can't record it. So by way of an example, if we went to a property that was built in 2003, let's say, and there was no loft hatch, or for whatever reason, the loft hatch was not accessible, and we can't inspect the loft, then from our point of view, we can't include the level of loft insulation that's there. But the dating range on the system will then default to the insulation that that building would have had at the date it was constructed. So it, it will then assume that it has some insulation, probably somewhere between 50 and probably 100 millimetres for that sort of date range. So it's helpful in that respect. The other thing that it's very helpful for is uh, if the building has been extended in more recent times. So for sake of argument, if you had a 1900 building that was extended in 2008, then you can you can assess the extension based on the building regulations of 2008 as opposed to, to originally. That's helpful. Some facets of the EPC that I think should be there that aren't. So that one of the principal ones is for an existing dwelling EPC, it makes no allowance for the orientation of the building. So if you, for sake of argument, if you had one of these cluster terraces that only has one heat loss wall, then it would get the same EPC score, whether that heat loss wall faced due south or due north. But clearly the heat loss wouldn't be the same, but the EPC score would. And interestingly, if you do an EPC for a new dwelling, you do include orientation, you just don't for an existing one. Okay. And you also uh, had some uh, points about the way it rates the electrical heating systems. It, it, again, it doesn't take account of best practice or the most modern efficient radiators. Does it? I, I think, yes, I think the the way that the current system deals with electric heating is probably the source of greatest complaint by people. Uh, for the reasons you say, Paul, I think, as far as I'm aware, I think the last time the heating algorithms were changed was about 10 years ago. And obviously, in that time, there's been an enormous advance in some of the electric heating systems that have been introduced. And they're just not recognised by an EPC in the way that householders and, and property owners think that they should be. And we have had situations where we've had people remove storage heating, old storage heating, as part of uh, a property refurbishment and put some, as they've been advised, efficient energy heating in, sort of gel-filled radiator-type uh, electric heating, um, only to find that they have to reinstate a, a storage heater just to get the EPC to pass. So I, I think I think that's certainly one of the things that there's a lot of people wanting a review on is electric heating because there's an enormous choice out there now, and um, you just it's very difficult to uh, to get anything new or different to score the way you'd like it to for the EPC. Well, let's hope that the government continues to try at least to introduce sensible le legislation to help improve energy performance in buildings. Uh, but um, you mentioned there the EPC obviously dates back or reverts back to building regulations at different periods of construction. Uh, but the UK housing stock goes back centuries. Uh, Stuart, as he mentioned, is living in a, a 1930s, I think you said, or 1920s place in Wales at the moment. Let's have a look at the different eras of construction for property in the UK. Tell us something about those, Graham. 
So generally, as I say, there's there's a number of, of date bandings that can be selected for the EPC, but in terms of historic, they all would get thrown into a category which is called pre-1900. And so within that, you've got the ability to determine whether uh, the property is, is brick or masonry built or whether it's timber framed or, or whether it's um, something different, which normally goes into a category called system build. If it's of one of those, it will get treated exactly the same if it was built in 1899 or if it was built in 1700. Though theoretically, that would still record the thermal performance because within that you also uh, you also record the wall thickness, and so it will make a difference for you know for sake of argument, you've got a 12 inch solid wall as, as against a, a nine inch solid wall. And then as you move through, once you get post-1900, you start seeing cavity wall construction. But again, that that is recorded within the EPC. And then as you move sort of, I suppose, post-war, I think the, the date ranges are more about what then would come with that building by way of building regulations. So the introduction of, uh, of cavity wall insulation. And then you think post-oil crisis, the walls uh, windows were from building regulations point of view windows were were smaller as part of the post energy crisis um and i think it it will make allowances for that and then as you move further up to modern day you're talking about internal wall insulation the introduction of floor insulation which wasn't required up until reasonably recently so it does make allowances for those what allowance, I suppose, you don't get to see, but it does make an allowance for them. Okay. So, yes, you've got solid wall construction in period uh, properties, and the big uh, invention was then cavity walls, which started very thin cavity between the internal wall construction and the uh, the exterior wall construction. Um, And then you had different building regulations uh, that followed post-war, which introduced various energy-saving elements. Uh, But insulation, let's have a look at that in wall construction, because the key factor of old old buildings, period buildings, is breathability. Uh, So what is the problem there with breathability and insulation? So with solid wall construction, if you look at your sort of in inverted commas period building, you would tend to have brick construction and you would have a lime mortar, which is what you'd see on, you know, in all these listed buildings and what have you. And the idea was the external leaf of the wall gets wet with the rain. The bricks are porous, so it will retain some moisture. But because you've got your lime pointing and the porosity of the brick is that the moisture will evaporate back out through the external wall, hence keeping the inside dry. That's the plan. The difficulty you've got, and also you've got to bear in mind that set within that is you probably had a a rather drafty sash window, and so the building has had an ability to breathe. Yes, just uh, jumping in, the the key point to bear in mind here is the condensation point of water which i think is uh, four degrees so that's when water uh if you've got a very cold exterior at uh, you know below freezing and you've got a warm interior somewhere between the outside and the inside is this four degree point where water condenses and it uh will then start running down the walls now in a very old building 
actually the condensation point was probably inside the brick. So like you say, the moisture just sat in the brick and then when the sun came out, it evaporated back outside. But now if you introduce new insulation at some point in this new wall construction, what happens? So if you start off with thinking about external wall insulation, you've now got the the thought of, well, how are you, how's rainwater being dealt with? How's that going to evaporate back from the building that effectively you're sealing a porous surface which is arguably not beneficial to that building aside from cosmetically you could vastly change the outlook of it internally you've got a couple of options you can you can apply insulation directly to the wall which i think will broadly increase your your condensation issue what most do is they set a, a narrow cavity between the internal face of the external wall so they do and then they do a timber stud frame and they insulate that and board that but i mean condensation is an issue and for no other reason than that is that when you do this insulation internally you invariably include a vapor barrier to effectively contain that moisture Yes, yeah, so that's a. I mean, it's a, it's a old building construction method called dry lining, isn't it? That uh, uh, you put some battens on the wall and you stick a some plasterboard with all aluminium foil, foil on the back. Like you say, that traps the moisture condensing now inside that air gap, which can run down the walls, and black mold is sometimes the result. Or in, uh, this is a big problem with the retrofitting. It is, and then you've also got the. You know, if we're talking about a period building, if you're externally insulating you're manifestly changing the outlook which is a big problem if it's listed on a conservation area and if you're doing it internally then any sort of vestiges of you know pretty cornicing and and three-part skirting boards and all these sort of things you've got to think about how it's going to change the look and feel of the building and of course your window reveals will be you know significantly deeper than they would have originally been and and you you start you know altering the character of that building so uh, the reason we're focusing so much on period buildings here is uh, because this is one of the most challenging uh, kinds of property to upgrade the energy rating system uh, i came across some uh, facts and figures which you might which i can throw into the mix here these were from the ons website that's the office for national statistics and these were published in january of last year so three-fifths of assessed homes in england and wales have low energy efficiency ratings and the age of the property is the most significant factor ahead of the fuel used and property type Almost all houses built since 2012 have high ratings, uh, but that's because of the building regulations that have been applied, Uh, whereas it's around one in 10 houses in England and Wales built before 1900. Uh, So one in five homes in England were built before 1900 and one in five in Wales as well. Overall, less than half the homes in England and Wales have an EPC rating of C or above. So we're talking about the bottom half. Uh, How are they going to achieve this EPC rating of C? Uh, The age of the property is the most significant factor. Uh, The property type is also significant with obviously flats and maisonettes being more likely to get a good rating than detached houses. But... um, Looking then at how you improve it, ignoring slightly the EPC rating, what are the best ways of improving the energy performance of your buildings, Graham? I think if we're talking about the example that the, the property that we we were sort of imagining a moment ago, loft insulation is very important. The heat loss upwards is significant, and loft insulation is generally a, a, a 
a reasonably cost-effective, easy win. So if the, I would I would start with that, I think, if it were me, um, and get the loft insulation to somewhere 270, 300 millimetres. But also, if it's a period property, I would be mindful that I wouldn't stuff the insulation right up to the eaves tight because you still, whilst you, you're insulating for to sort of save heat loss, you still need to ensure that that loft void, that roof is still adequately ventilated. Otherwise, you will create a condensation issue and the subsequent consequences of that within the loft. So you need to make sure that the roof has adequate ins- ventilation. But I would I would start with the roof and then probably from there, I would start assuming that we're not doing wall insulation at the moment for the reasons that we talked about. I think my next stop would be looking at the heating system to see how how efficient that was and what opportunities there were there. Because certainly if you've got, you know, a fairly antiquated, you know, one of these sort of old floor mounted boilers, if you change that through to a, you know, a modern condensing one, there is a significant energy improvement but also in terms of heating controls makes a difference not an enormous difference to the score but it does make a difference and it will certainly make a difference to your energy bills if you know if you've got a biggish property think about having zonal control in there so that you're not heating rooms that you're not regularly using and then and as i say those controls do make a difference to the epc score not enormous but they do the thermostat. So how important are solar panels and air source heat pumps and ground source heat pumps and other ways of heating a building to the scores? Uh, solar panels help reasonably significantly provided the roof is such that you can get a decent size array on it. So if you've got one panel, it's not going to make much difference to your score. But if you've got, you know, six plus on on your roof, that will make an appreciable difference to your score so that's worth doing if you're minded to do that that's worth doing Uh, solar water makes a degree of difference it doesn't make a huge difference on the epc score but it is it does make an improvement if you're using solar to heat your water air source and ground source heat pumps in my experience they don't make a massive difference to the score i think their their big win is their carbon saving I don't know that there's, I mean, there's anecdotal evidence that the cost saving isn't particularly enormous either. It's probably fair to say I haven't seen enough to form anything like an expert opinion, but there have been situations where um, certificates have been undertaken where people have had air source replace uh, a gas boiler and their score hasn't appreciably gone down at all. The other thing with heat pumps is the building is you need to be mindful of where you're going to install a heat pump. A heat pump only has benefit in a very well insulated building because they have a they have a lower operational temperature. So if you think a boiler will run at say 65 degrees, a heat pump will run at sort of 50 to 55, and therefore if you've got a building which isn't well insulated, you're not going to see the benefits of a heat pump that. Um, the marketing literature will describe. So they do have a limited application, as well as the fact that you need space to have one, which will preclude them from going in in some places too. Yeah, so obviously the modern um, thermal efficiency 
Bible is really about having a sealed building and having no drafts, almost having recycled air within a building, that that is a way of making sure you're not leaking heat into the outside world. Uh, but it's very, very difficult to do that in a period building. What about draft proofing on period buildings? Does that help? There is an entry uh, on the software system for draft proofing. Generally, uh, it's it's used in conjunction with with double glazing, but theoretically, if it was single glazed and there were some, you know, proper draft proofing measures in, then it would be included in that. In terms of the difference it makes to the score, I think it is incredibly negligible, to the point that it might it might not affect the score at all. I think it's more about the sort of user experience rather than it being an energy improvement. Okay. So um, there is a group called the Society for the Preservation of Ancient Buildings, or SPAB, and they did uh, a number of studies on thermal efficiency and particularly many articles on retrofitting and the problems. Uh, So if you're technically minded, go and have a look at the SPAB website. Uh, I attended a seminar that they did in conjunction with Historic Scotland and learnt that uh, actually they had done some studies on old buildings and they discovered that in terms of draft proofing or the heat loss through a window, uh, if you had shutters and curtains, which was the very old uh, way of doing things, that was almost as efficient as double glazing. So there you go. Uh, you don't have to seal your building against the outside air and you can always let a bit of fresh air inside in an old property. Let's talk about the money, um, the grants available. Are there any? What's happening there? I, I think that the grant schemes that I've been aware of generally work on the basis or have worked on the basis of a carbon saving so there was certainly a period and I don't know if it's still current but there was certainly a period where people were able to get uh, quite elderly boilers changed under a grant system Um, and as I understood it it was on the basis that if, if the boiler was very old compared to a new one the carbon saving was significant and provided that carbon saving could create a value in excess of the cost of the replacement boiler, then it could go ahead on that basis. So there have been boiler grants available. There's been periodically grants for available for uh, loft insulation and cavity wall insulation uh, as part of some local authority initiatives and the original Green Deal initiative. I think in terms of what's available now, I think it's quite dependent on local authority funding. Which is uh, challenged at the moment. Um, Yes, quite possibly. Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, Stuart, any uh, questions from you? No, I think just listening to it all, it seems that it's best to go for, you know, the bigger picture, simple solutions rather than getting involved in all the lots of nitty gritty. Just try and get a consultant, I think, to come in and have a look at what you're doing and give you some advice on it before you go ahead and try and get changes made. I was thinking about my own situation. That's what I would suggest to myself and my clients, I think. I think the um, I think you're right. And what we often get asked is people say to us, well, you know, my house is currently a D, what would I need to do? And the truth of it is, is that the only real way to do it is for the surveyor to go out and do an EPC assessment. Now, you don't have to lodge every certificate you produce. And so what you, in essence, can do for a customer is undertake the survey so you can obviously see what the score would currently be. And then you can effectively 
sort of interchange and, and mix in and out various improvements and see what individually or collectively they do for the score. And then you've got obviously the opportunity that you can present to the customer, well, you know, these are the measures and these this is what the resultant score would be, either individually or collectively. And then, of course, they can decide from there which, if any, they're, they're wanting to implement. But at least they know what the effect will be before they get the checkbook out. Okay, well, that's very good advice. And like you say, get get on with the easy win improvements. Um, that's it for today. If you like the information we give you in these podcasts, click like, share with friends, etc. If you have a topic you want discussed, send an email to podcast ap- at apwproperty.co.uk. Uh, my thanks to Graham Kinnear from Graham Kinnear Property Consultants for his expert help today. Thank you. And to Stuart Williamson from APW. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, Graham. It was very educational. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. My name is Paul Shearer. Have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast series produced for APW by Emma Holton at Brilliant Audio. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe, hit like, share it with your friends. If you didn't, keep stum. You can find more episodes in all your usual podcast places.